never has there been a greater moment or a greater use case to prove that privacy effectively is the currency of trust. Data is not just information. Data is relationships. So we need to follow how these relationships form this whole entire web of trust. The reason why we have to understand that trust is a derivative of relationships is that if we build systems that don't understand that, that means we risk breaking down existing relationships with the technology we build, and we break down those relationships of trust and we rebuild them in our own image. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, Join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Welcome to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm going to start by revealing some of the sausage making at Coindesk. It's about how we treat so-called crypto-adjacent stories. That is, news and issues that aren't squarely in the realm of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, but which are closely associated with it. Our approach is to address certain mainstream topics with what we call the lens of decentralization. The concept is inspired by Coindesk executive editor Mark Hockstein's line that blockchain doesn't have all the answers, but it asks the right questions. So we cover topics such as monetary policy and cybersecurity and COVID contact tracing. But we do so from the perspective of how certain issues within those fields highlight the challenges posed by centralized systems of control. I've found that ever since I first went down the Bitcoin and blockchain rabbit hole seven years ago, I've tended to apply this lens to many of the weighty issues of our time. And there's no bigger one than the topic of this week's episode, humanity's relationship with data and privacy in the internet age. A book that has strongly shaped my thinking here is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshona Zuboff. Zuboff gives us a unique, useful framework to understand the economy that has developed around the giant internet platforms dominating our lives. The Googles, Facebooks, Amazons, and so forth. More than that, she points out what's at stake in handing so much power to those centralized gatekeepers and giving them free range on our data, Zuboff says, in losing a fundamental right to privacy. We are at risk of losing something that's essential to our humanity, free will. How does that happen? Because in allowing these platforms to track our online activity, We've given them a magic formula to manipulate us to their and their advertisers' advantage. First, we let their algorithms decide what content and ads we see. Then, by allowing them to develop a feedback loop of data analytics on our interaction with that contact, we've given them license to figure out how to modify our behavior. Reading the book, I thought, oh no, we're already living in the matrix. Zuboff doesn't really drill down into how the governance structure of these platforms contributes to the problem. I think we need to. We think of these platforms as private entities to which we assign a property right over the data that their proprietary software captures. But in reality, the value in Facebook really isn't created by software. 
It's derived from all the human beings who congregate on the platform and from the communities they create. As security expert Bruce Schneier puts it, you are not Facebook's customer, you are Facebook's product. If we view it that way, and if we apply the blockchain lens of decentralization, we can at least start to think about how solving the problem may lie in forging new systems of governance. How might social media communities, which are inherently decentralized, leaderless, and location agnostic, govern themselves in ways that don't leave them dependent on the organizing power of the platform's all-controlling algorithms? Can we figure out how all the valuable data that we generate can be managed and harnessed across the digital media economy in such a way that no centralized gatekeeper has control of it? Can the people who generate that data take control of it? I would say it boils down to a new idea of citizenship, one that's in sync with the digital world. How should we, as digital citizens, govern our relationship with each other? We'll be exploring this with two more excellent guests in this episode. We'll speak to tech ethnographer Trisha Wong. Trisha is co-founder of Sudden Compass and she's the chief research officer at Maiden Labs, a group devoted to accelerating mainstream digital currency adoption. She's also a data and society affiliate and a Geotech Atlantic Council fellow. Joining Trisha will be Dele Atunda, the CEO and founder of Metami, whose technologies bring smart contracts, data, and digital assets together to create a universal smart data marketplace to empower individuals. Dele is also a founder of the Internet Foundation, uh, an NGO dedicated to promoting universal digital rights as a natural extension of human rights and the sustainable use of personal data in commerce. Before we meet Trisha and Dele, though, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So I was just fishing around before we did this. I just wanted to get a sense of what the context is for uh, this discussion. And, and I've always sort of loved these numbers that come out about how, how much data is actually being gathered now in the world. And I came across uh, an article on the WEF's forum, the World Economic Forum's We uh, do have page. some articles on you our You do have some articles that's, up there. And this true. one talks, the headline of which was how much data is generated each day. Just what oh. I'm looking for. And this was an article from last year. It was projecting for this year for there to be a total of 44 zettabytes. We all know that you know, a byte is you know, a measure of data. We know about what, you know, a megabyte and a kilobyte and so forth. Well, zettabytes has got, it's a one with 24 zeros after it. You know, I always think like saying a large number without context doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think we get the <laughs> idea, right? And, and also like, does it really matter that there's a load of data? I mean, how yeah. we, I'm sure that Trisha's gonna have stuff to say about like, you know, the amount of data itself isn't what matters. It's like what's done with it and what's in it. But nonetheless, it does capture the idea that we're just in this huge process of vacuuming up so much data from our world these days. Yeah, well, I'm reminded of, you know, 100 deaths is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And I wonder what, you know, 24 zettabytes, right, of, uh, of data on a pandemic might look like uh, if we kind of got to that level. So, yeah, I mean, I think the point is that there's more and more data and we're kind of exponentially growing the data that's being collected about each of us through patterns that we don't even have any awareness of. They're happening kind of all around us, location data, traffic data, all these different kinds of things are, are continuously being plugged into algorithms that are trying to learn more about human behavior ostensibly, but that have a very specific purpose behind that, which I think is kind of to the point of what you were talking about 
earlier, you know, about Shoshana, about um, the book, Surveillance Capitalism, and kind of thinking about what does it mean when a lot of this information is without our knowledge, you know, handed from entity to entity, forget control over, we have zero visibility into. And what does that mean for how the concept of what, of what being human is, is being, being crafted? There's kind of like, when you think about relegating people to bits and bytes uh, versus their actual humanity, that is what a lot of corporate and government, for that matter, institutional agenda is about, is really trying to glean insight. Now, whether or not the intention behind that is positive or whether it's malevolent or whether it's, as in most cases, benign, the reality is that you lose an awful lot in that translation. So, you know, one thing I, I was thinking about as I was listening to your opener today is, um, you know, I run the blockchain, digital assets and data teams here at the forum. And so people are kind of surprised to hear that they're like, oh, well, you know, you were, were, aren't you a crypto person? If you do blockchain and digital assets, how does that connect? And to those of us who are in the space, to your point about, you know, Coindesk looking at like adjacent disciplines, I actually got into this space of blockchain technology because of my interest in data, specifically about data privacy. So before I came over to the forum, I was general counsel at a place called TechSoup. And so we uh, dealt with a lot of sensitive NGO data, data that, for example, the example I always used to use was, you know, in Uganda, there was a law that came down that said that it was actually illegal to be out as an LGBTQ plus person. And we worked with NGOs that were in that space that were doing education or empowerment around that. And we had, you know, relatively benign information, PII, personally identified information, but things like the existence of these organizations in and of themselves would be enough to raise a flag that could lead to imprisonment or worse if that information got into the hands of that particular government at that time. So I got very concerned about how we might be thinking about security around some of this data. And as a general matter, how civil society organizations, the constituency I worked with for many years and still do, I would say, could think about these things when they weren't necessarily well-funded or resourced to have cutting-edge encryption or these kinds of things around their data sets. And that's what led me into discussions about blockchain technology and thinking about how it might be a more secure way to at least track the transfer of this information and to be able to know in advance if it was accessed, you know, forget sharing, if it was actually accessed by the wrong, you know, whatever that might be defined by, dangerous parties and really had no positive intent towards these organizations. And the whole crypto thing was entirely distinct for me. You know, mm. that I was just looking at Bitcoin, actually digital gold, and kind of like, we'll put some money in there and see what happens. And I didn't make that connection for quite a while, actually. So to me, these things have always been intimately tied together. And the work at the forum that we do is really about how can we provide citizens access to digital data economy and global digital data economy in ways that are going to be empowering to them, you know, not where they're just being exploited as a product, but where there is going to be opportunity. And so I, I really can't think of a better person to kick us off than, than Trisha. So Trisha, as Michael noted, you are an ethnographer by training. And so you think a lot about bringing your discipline to a lot of different areas. And we had, I had the pleasure of becoming acquainted with you over this pandemic, your new friend, when we were talking about actually digital currencies and whether there was any thought or consideration being given in the technical deployment of these things or the build, the architecture of these things around personhood and digital personhood. And in addition, you know, I know that you, you think and talk a lot about the privacy aspect that I just talked about. Like, what does it mean to have privacy when you're a digital citizen? And what does it mean to be a human, to be a person, you know, in, in this time that we're in this kind of unusual and crazy time that we're in? So I'd love to hand it over to you to kind of kick us off by going a little deeper on some of those ideas and telling us what you've been up to recently, but also how we should start thinking about these topics. 
Thanks, Sheila. You know, I got into this space similarly in that I didn't like just think, wake up one day like, oh, I love blockchain. But it was because, you know, as someone who was studying how communities use technology as an ethnographer, that's what I do. And I do this in rural areas around the world from China, Mexico, Peru to urban areas. And one of the things I always observe in social interactions is how people get things done. And so it's like unavoidable. You have to understand how people use money because money is not just a rational thing. It's not something like, you know, in the barter mentalist model, it's really born out of social interaction. And as a sociologist, I always want to understand how do people use money to get things done in their lives. And what's fascinating about blockchain as I started looking to it is that it was a very amazing promise. You know, it's very much like message that I heard early on the internet that inter information wants to be free. And it was similar things like, oh, everything it's decentralized. So everything is better and we're going to be more free. And we're going to create an alternative model. And of course I was like, who are these people being so utopic and like, you know, more kind of tech centric arguments. And as I looked into it, I was like, if you actually just dig past, you know, the hype and you actually look at what the technology is doing and the actual, you know, really, there's really smart people working in the space, like, you know, everyone here. And what I saw was that there was this opportunity really around not just the changing of rules, but it's a changing of roles. And, you know, when you're thinking about systems change, you really want to think about how it's, it's those kind of two levels are really important. And what I saw here was that if we want to scale this technology and if we want to scale blockchain and actually bring to life some of these promises, right? We have some major issues. <laughs> we have major adoption issues. I mean, right now, only like less than 1%, around 1% of people have traded or sold or bought, you know, any kind of cryptocurrency. And right now, I think no app can claim that they have more than 10,000 users a day. And when I talk to people in this space, they're always like, well, eventually they're going to come. We're going to get a hockey stick or eventually we're going to solve things and we're going to resolve onboarding and education. And I don't think that's going to be the case. You know, I think we have a massive adoption issue and uh, design issue. And part of that, part of what feeds into that, the reason why we're not seeing the sudden adoption, you know, of digital currency or crypto applications, our imagination is actually very narrow. Not the stories we tell, but whose stories we tell and who we design for is very narrow. And I think that the issue is that we have divorced the thick data, the qualitative, the understanding of people away from the actual technology. And we think, well, we focus so much on the design of the technical stack. And we just assume that the people who are designing the stack are the ones who are making the decisions and that everyone else wants to use the technology for the same reasons, right? And the same, they have the same values and same backgrounds. And that's not the case. And I think one really important way to think about this is that our conversations around privacy, I think are very limiting and narrowing to actually see the real value of blockchain enabled technology. And the reason why I say that is that privacy is very different from anonymity. And we often conflate that. And this is really critical if we're going to think about what makes someone a human being, like what is a person, right? And so privacy is when your identity is known, but not your actions. So you have privacy in your home. The government knows where you live. People on your block know where you live. They know your address, you know, you're paying taxes, but your actions are not known within your home. Anonymity is when your actions are known, but your identity is not. When you go into a bar or when you call a um, suicide hotline, or if you're participating in Alcoholics Anonymous, you want your actions are known because anonymity is pro-social behavior, but you don't necessarily want your identity known. You want to have that option. So when we're talking about blockchain, I think privacy is very narrow because it's actually, you have a larger spectrum of interactions. And when you get into the commercial aspect of privacy or institutional management of privacy, it sits much more on the end of technical security, legal checkboxes, compliance, terms of services. It doesn't really enable us to talk about what does it mean for human beings? 
And partially that's because privacy is very difficult to find because we come from a very positivist, like we're going to define privacy and either you agree to this definition or not. And so everyone has like their own definition of privacy. What I would love to push for us, you know, push for the crypto space to expand our conversation around our vocabulary to is to think about personhood. We talk about it. We all know about it. I know Delhi talks about agency. You know, all of us talk about self-determination. This is all personhood. These are qualities that make you a person and it's the ability to live your life and to have a livelihood. Now, the thing is, is that who is defined as a person has changed throughout history. You know, our definition of who counts as human has really shifted. You know, at one point in time, slaves were not counted as people. You have people all around the world who are still fighting for their personhood. You have caste-related oppression in India. You have indigenous communities all around South America who are still fighting. And the thing is, is that right now, for the first time in history, privacy and personhood are both mediated digitally. And so what this means is that it's really hard to be a person without being digital, without exchanging data, without creating data, without passing data, all of this stuff. So when I'm talking to people about their personal data, it's a really abstract thing to just roll up and be like, guess what? You have personal data. It's yours. You have control over it. What you actually need to do is use metaphors. And one of the best metaphors I love talking to people about is the metaphor of the company town. And there was a one point in history where companies had so much monopoly and power that they owned everything, including their workers, including the houses they lived on. And of course, workers didn't have to pay rent for their homes. They didn't have to pay for their food. They didn't have to pay for the schools. They could just live there for free. And when I explain this to people, I, I ask them, does this sound familiar at all? Where you go to a place where you don't have to pay for it. You can see anybody you want. You can access any information you want. But actually, you have no idea how to operate outside of the space. And once you actually tell people that, they're like, oh, that actually sounds a lot like Facebook or Google or you know, all of the apps that we use. And that's why I think it's really important that this metaphor can help people understand that, you know what, you are living in a company town. We all are. We're living in modern company towns. And the thing about a company town when you're living in there is that you don't understand the value of your labor, of your data outside of a company town, just like people who used to live there. And so I think the first thing we have to do when talking to people about raising awareness of what is your personal data is one, just recognition. It's just first helping people understand that they are in a company town and using these kind of metaphors. Second is to help them understand that they have agency to do things outside of this company town that there is, they can leave. You can actually walk out and there's a better world where your data will have value. You have other options. You have other forms of livelihood. But the third thing that's really critical is that what I don't see happening enough is that you have a lot of people being like, well, if you don't like these apps, if you don't like these platforms, just walk out. And it's not that easy. It's like, have you ever actually talked to someone who is, let's say, an undocumented migrant? You know, these are communities that I study off people who are very marginalized. And for them, these networks are everything. Facebook, WhatsApp, this is how they find jobs. This is how they stay in touch with their families these apps have brought them a lot of value to their lives. And these apps have also brought a lot of value to my life too. It's not a binary that these things are just evil and they bring no good. And so we just can leave because you can't just expect an individual to leave on their own because they're in a web of relationships. And so you have to actually explain to them that you can't just, you know, ask them, Hey, you should get out. You have to actually give them a value proposition an alternative. And we need to find better ways to design these alternatives. And part of that work is understanding that data is not just information. Data is relationships. So we need to follow how these relationships 
form this whole entire web of trust. The reason why we have to understand that trust is a derivative of relationships is that if we build systems that don't understand that, that means we risk breaking down existing relationships with the technology we build and we break down those relationships of trust and we rebuild them in our own image. And this is very dangerous. So this is why we need to raise awareness about what does this mean for communities and how do communities interpret these technologies? What are their stories and what is the value for them? I'd love to dig down on some of them, but I think it is a good segue to Dele because as Trisha mentioned, Dele, you know, you are operating in this space. You're actually literally trying to create an architecture that would enable some of the stuff that, that Trisha is talking about. So tell us a little bit about MetaMe. How do you create a marketplace in which my data, a reflection of myself, is something that I can actually transact with? It's really amazing. I'm starting to hear this term person a lot more from fractions of society, similar issues around recognition, acknowledgement, and rights effectively. So I agree completely. And that really was the genesis of the Internet Foundation around this issue around human rights, because in the big old world out there at the moment, human rights was the first time we came together as a species, as a global society, and said, well, these are the rights that we can accord ourselves as people, as persons, as humans, effectively. And they're a great sort of foundational set of principles. But what became very clear to me was that we needed to look at those rights in the context of a digital existence in the context of this increasingly digital world. And to lead that into the marketplace conversation, I was really intrigued by how we started the conversation around the amount of data that's generated daily. So there are a couple of things that I think are really important to put in context. You know, the data economy is the economy right now. That's a really important thing. You know, McKinsey did a report, I think it was back in 2016, where they basically deduced that there is more value and productivity generated for moving data around the world now than for moving physical goods. So, you know, the reality is data is the economy. It is driving the economy in very tangible senses. And I completely agree with you, Tricia. You know, data is it's an extension of ourselves. It's part of us. This is really kind of this meta concept that we have this meta extension. But to come back to this issue about how much data is generated, you know, therein, I think, lies the heart of the problem. Before we can start to get to discuss our rights around data and and how we exercise those with decentralized technologies and the like, the first problem we have to recognize is that one of the primary issues we have with data is that we actually don't have a fit-for-purpose way of measuring it. The only measure that we actually have for data is based on size. Um, you know, bits, kilobits, et cetera, all the way to zettabits, right? <laughs> and that was relevant in a world of, what is it, modems and restricted access. But now in this 5G broadband world, actually the size of data is the least relevant part of it. So, you know, there's all this talk about data is the new oil and all of that. But the reality is that we've never encountered a resource like data Um, in the history of man. Now, yes, we've had information and information has always been powerful, but data is where you can actually take information and make it this concrete thing in that regard. So 
The first problem is to find a correct way to actually be able to measure data. And that's one of the things that dawned on me very early in this, as we started the Internet Foundation and started to approach this issue of how do you create a marketplace? Well, the first thing was to be able to create a unit of account for data that we can measure and not measure just on the basis of size, but on the basis of sensitivity, identifiability. And these issues that are really central to how this information can be used to help or harm us accordingly. So I think that's as we approach this issue of marketplace, this is where we have to start. Without getting into technical details about it, how we came to resolve this was to create crypto asset. And I, I love the conversation about blockchain and Bitcoin. Likewise, you know, I think I first discovered Bitcoin in about 2010, 11. And I was fascinated by it, by just the, what actually fascinated me was the story of Satoshi Nakamoto, this guy who created it and disappeared. I was like, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, this is like stranger than fiction. In that period, we had been working on a universal declaration of digital rights, where we looked at the principles of human rights and said, how do we translate? What do those mean in cyberspace? So what does privacy mean? What does the right to free speech mean? What does the right to free assembly mean? On one hand, and then an ethical data standard in terms of rules on how companies could use that data. But after all that was said and done, to Trisha's point, it was, well, okay, even if we put these rules in place, how do we audit them? How do we track them? How do we enforce them? And that was a very difficult problem to solve. The point that I think is really important that's sometimes lost in this blockchain discussion around that, I think the real critical turning point from data was when smart contracts emerged with Ethereum, because that's when we actually now had not only a means of auditing and tracking transactions in an immutable and, and reliable way, but we could also now start to have immutable programmability. So we could now start to actually put rules into objects and into applications and into the network that could be immutably enforceable. And this is the real game-changing aspect, I think, when you combine all the great attributes and benefits that decentralization bring in that sense, but the ability to actually have immutable code, immutable programs, is where suddenly now we have the tool set to be able to really bring this into existence in a really tangible and meaningful way. So I think um, just to kind of come to, to answer you very directly now in terms of the marketplace aspect of it, you know, I think there's a lot of ground to cover in terms of the value of data and the value of data to us as humans in that regards. But I think the first issue is around data value itself. And as I say, you know, we need these various attributes around it. In summary, that really comes back to this issue of data as currency, right? And so that's the hurdle that people often struggle to make. Well, what does that mean? And, you know, I actually, I read the article you wrote recently, Michael, about the history of money and about, you know, 7,000 years Bitcoin competing against gold. And, you know, what, it, it was really interesting. And it reminded me of something that Yuval Harari wrote in one of his books. And he basically posited that, cities emerged from the invention of money and writing. And it was these two factors coming together that led us to be able to organize ourselves 
in this macro manner to be able to have these large sort of urban developments. So um, what's really interesting about that is that money and writing effectively emerged at very similar points in history and, and combined had this impact. So there's always been this very close correlation between information and currency. I mean, look at Isaac Newton, for example, when he invented the paper money in that regards, right? The key thing, I think, in this sense is that all money is information, but not all information is just money. So in effect, actually, as we're seeing today and the reality that we're seeing in, in these data monopolies is that the data is actually more valuable than money. There's a reason why Facebook doesn't want to charge us a subscription fee for the service and not be able to monetize our data in that way, because how much are they going to charge us in terms of a subscription fee that would match the ability for them to re-monetize our data over and over and over again? So, you know, we have to start from the perspective that data is definitely has intrinsic value in a similar way that gold has intrinsic value, whether you use it as a currency or not. Whether it, gold has value, it has monetary value, but it also has various other attributes that are valuable. Data is similar in this regard. So I think this is the foundation upon which we can then start to build a marketplace by having a unit of account that we can have an ethical and fair way of measuring the level of risk, the level of value and opportunity associated with it. And then from there, we can then start to extend property rights and other kind of human-centered rights around that make a marketplace tangible. I just want to jump in and just point out, I've changed my background in honor of, <laughs> of, of Yuval Harari. I use this reference all the time. I was about to say, you summoned, when you mentioned Yuval Harari, you think you've summoned Michael. If he weren't on screen, he would have like joined us. I couldn't help myself. It's a Sumerian tablet and it's exactly the point. It was the very first form of writing. It is the most boring thing. It's not a piece of Shakespeare. This is a ledger. I think the very first name ever written ever is of an accountant, some guy called Kashim who was measuring how many sheep should be paid for with a certain amount of bushels of hay or something. And that's, that's it. That's how it all began. This is the beginning of civilization. I mean, double spend problem, right? It's how you're addressing the double spend problem from the very early days to avoid what was the consequence of double spend. It was violence. <laughs> it was taking go. that same tablet and bashing someone on the head with it because <laughs> they were trying to assert, right? So, but I want to get back to this idea because we've heard this expressed a lot of different ways, you know, recently data as an asset, uh, data's currency. There's a lot of these different kinds of metaphors people are drawing to, to underscore the value of, of data. But, you know, it's interesting to kind of, when people try to commoditize their own data, there was, for example, uh, a reporter who actually went out and kind of tracked their work and their, as a journalist and tried to kind of like track how much value it would obtain based on number of clicks and other kind of how much it was, you know, shared and things like that. Uh, and the value of it was like three cents over the course of like a year, right? Like it was very, very little when you try to do it yourself. And so there is a reliance on some of these platforms or others to kind of amplify the data. Now, at the same time, the data that I generate for any platform, whatever it is, any company, let's, let's take it broader, forget tech platforms, for any company is bigger than just information about me myself. It is information that is then being put together with all kinds of other data about people like me demographically or in whatever capacity to create a data set, a broad data set, they can help inform X company X about consumer behavior. And they can make assumptions, therefore, about you know, where to spend their own marketing or other budgets, try to attract people they think are like me, 
by boiling me down to certain essences that are relevant to their business. And so I think that commodification, you know, the flip side of it is that it is almost always exploitative. There is, there is a person on the other end whose information or data or personhood, I would argue, is being exploited. And I think the interesting question for me is how do we put more agency to that process? Because I might be just fine with that. I might be like, take my data and run with it. I don't care because I'm getting Y in return. And I actually have, I imagine that I have, or in some cases, I do have the ability to make a conscious decision about that. I think this is a very culturally driven question as well. The answers that you're going to get out of Asian culture, out of Indian culture, you know, are very different from the answers you're going to get from a libertarian who is living in a different kind of society. So there, there's no monolithic answer here. But I do think that it comes down to this core question around how do we empower people in these systems, which are not going away. If anything, they're accelerating in terms of their the speed of input, the speed of processing, and therefore, like the ability to kind of pull these different groups or demographics or whatever consumer customer databases, you know, together in ways that are really destroying the awareness of me within them as an actual individual with preferences that may change over time, for example. Trisha, I'd love to turn to you being an ethnographer as you are, to talk a little bit about this concept of agency in the new, you know, data economy and how you think, what can we do? I guess is really what I want to know. Like, what is it that consumers or or people, citizens, whatever it might be, can do to try to develop more agency here? And then thinking systemically, how can we refashion these systems using things like the new innovation, technological innovations that we're seeing, including things like Medini and other innovations, to ensure that we're not just recreating or, or worse, I think, even enhancing the exploitative components and aspects of these systems. Yeah, so I think that we're all trying to answer this question that you just posed, which is like, how do we actually expose a problem and help people? I hear that there are many solutions like what Dele is pr- proposing, what, at least for many me, which is that it's helping people understand the financial value of their data. However, I think it's only one smart part of the problem. And I'm sure you would agree with me too on that and that you're not purporting that you're solving the whole thing. However, I don't think a lot of people are are as nuanced. A lot of people actually think, well, if we just enable people to sell their data, the problem is solved. And that is so naive, right? It's so naive to think that like, if you just monetize that, it'll make things better. And I think that the way what we need to do to empower people to understand that their data is theirs is first is we need to actually help people understand that they have control over their data. And that means that there's digital literacy, data literacy that has to be done. And that's why there's so many organizations and this starts at a hyper local level. I think it's great that we have organizations like that I'm part of like data and society or, you know, internet foundation, there's organizations all around the world who are doing a lot of great things. But I don't think that we're the ones on, like, we need to enable organizations on the ground, on a hyper-local level for people to enable communities to have conversations with people who look and feel and like literally are from their place to talk to them about what that means. And so that's why I'm really excited by um, our work by groups like, you know, our data bodies, you know, who are doing the work of like doing this kind of like workshops and education. And so I think organizations that we're part of should be enabling things like that on the ground. And I think that it starts with actually using metaphors and ways that are really simple. So I want to start with a story of personal time just to say that like we have a story, we have an example of when we've had something like data that was abstract, that you couldn't touch, but that was quantified and then monetized. And then we were exploited. And I want to end with a story on how we arrived at Company Towns and bring it back to where we are today. But a lot of times people say, oh, we've never had this happen before. You know, something like you can't touch and now it's like being monetized. And I'm like, no, no. Like if you're a historian, like all, you know, you know, Sheila, you love history all the <laughs> yeah. time. And we talk, we love talking to people who are historians is that we've had examples like this before. 
And this is actually the beginning of capitalism is that we had to learn what time was and that time belonged to us and that time was personal, time belonged to the community. Same thing with data. And what happened was during industrialization is when the enclosure movement happened and you removed people from the, the rights to their land, which is you know, a couple hundred years of work of stripping people of their rights, all of a sudden you have people ending up in cities. So I would say, you know, it's not just a currency. It wasn't just money and writing that created cities. It was also the concept of time and monetizing time, right? And so you have all this available population. They're landless, they're hungry. And they're like, oh, well, these are perfect bodies to fuel the factories. And so what did factory owners do in the beginning? They made it illegal. I mean, it wasn't like law, but it's like they literally just wouldn't allow you to bring in a watch. You would just not be hired. You would not be allowed back. It was like a casino. You know, they just recreate the casino environment. And workers were not allowed to actually understand time. Employers did everything possible to prevent workers from understanding that time was theirs and time was something that they could advocate for and protect for. So what happened is that when you people started to unionize and when violence happened, because workers eventually were like, screw this. They organized around time and it was a global movement. And people today are still fighting for the right to time. But this is where we get the emergence of the eight hours of work, eight hours of play and eight hours of rest. Right. And we see that people have been able to historically, you know, over a couple hundred of years, grasp that time is there, something abstract that they can have control over. Now, I think a new way to think about this right now is what we're actually in is we're living in company towns. And this becomes very clear when I explain the history of like, did you know at one point? that there were companies that owned everything and then people actually had to use the currency or if they were paid at all within the company. The company paid for everything. You didn't have to pay for anything. They owned you pretty much, right? You couldn't leave and you were stuck using their services, their terms and everything. And I'm like, what does that sound like? And people thought, oh, wow, you know, I'm in a company town. That sounds a lot like Facebook, a lot like Google. Google campus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How about Google pay your, your page, you know, your search page? People always say, well, why aren't you publishing articles and journals? I'm like, no, my work is to really make this understandable first in layperson's hand to recognize one, you're living in a company town. Two, you have to recognize that there is agency and there's freedom outside the company town. And the reason why this is important is that you can't just tell people, oh, your data has value or you have value because people can't conceive of it. They don't even know what's out there. So that's why that step two is like, there's agency and there's value outside of this company town. So you have to help people see that. But here's the thing that I don't see happening, which is the next step, is that you cannot make this argument on an individual level just by telling someone, oh, why don't you just get off Facebook? Don't use WhatsApp, especially for marginalized communities or anyone where your whole families or your only network. I work with a lot of undocumented migrants. I would never tell one of them to get off of WhatsApp, which is their lifeline. As terrible as we know that Facebook could be, it's also really amazing and wonderful for many communities, including myself. And so we have to recognize that there's no binary, but that what data is, is relationships. And that is what I would love to get across. Just want to pick up on it a little bit. And that is this community concept of it all. That right. the, the value doesn't lie in isolation, right? This notion of my stuff is mine and I will hang on to that as my property rights concept, I think is really problematic when the value of data is nothing without Metcalfe's law, without the connectivity, without the expansion of all those nodes. That's where the value lies, which to me is community, which is network, which is everything else. So getting to that understanding is really important. You know, a couple of things I think are what you're saying, Trisha, that are, are interesting to me. One is, I mean, metaphors and comparisons are always valuable. So the company town is, is a great one. I've always thought like data is a currency, whether it truly is a currency or not, is actually useful because it is a way to explain to people that that thing that you think you're getting from Facebook for free 
because you're not paying any money, all of those services, everything else, why would they give it to you if they're not getting something in return? Well, you are, you're paying with something, you're paying with data, right? So that sort of stuff helps. But one of the things I think is potentially going to be very helpful is, is COVID-19. It strikes me that this is a moment in which we really understand the connectivity that matters. This disease is inherently a production of our connection. And the way we fight it is how we actually share data. So I'd like both of you to reflect, uh, you know, maybe you first, Dele, because you've literally built an app that grapples with this problem. How do, how do we actually extract individual data that can be very valuable to the whole and find ways that do so where we don't undermine agency, uh, that we don't undermine privacy. So maybe talk about the app, but also I'd like to delve into this awareness and can we work on this? Can we build with this moment to get to the educational point that, that Trisha was talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at like the digital realm, cyberspace from a human rights perspective, one thing that becomes very clear very quickly is that you have principles that are polarized. You have to apply different solutions to different scenarios. For example, privacy, you having the ability to control who can see what about you versus the right to freedom of speech, for example, which is the complete opposite thing. It's about actually being able to articulate something and for it not to be controlled, for it to be persistent and for it to be searchable and findable by anyone who wants to have it. So I think this is something we have to understand as we approach this space. There are different principles that require different solutions, different tactics to address them. And it's only when you bring them all together, all of these principles and all of these tactics together, that you start to have a meaningful solution. And I think certainly, ultimately, when you look at this, and you know, I started the Internet Foundation after the Snowden revelations, and it was sort of a response to that. And what became very clear is that you do have, ultimately, and I think it's different by degree in the East versus the West, but you constantly have this balance between the rights of the individual versus the rights of the community or the collective. And the state ultimately is supposed to be this protector of the collective. But in protecting the collective, we have to retain certain rights to the individual, which is sacrosanct. And that's what's being played out patently within COVID. And, you know, it's no accident, you know, if you, you look at this orientation of individualism versus community, community centricity, it's not communism, but community centricity, play out across the world and we can see what the impact of this is in this regard. I think one of the things that we're seeing through COVID is that as a community, we are codependent. And I agree. There are a couple of things I want to expand on a little bit. There is a narrative, which is false narrative around the value of individual data. And it's been perpetrated by the fangs out there, you know, Facebook says our data is worth about $17.50 to them or a year and, and all of this. But those are all based on their models. And it's based on this race to the bottom where one of the challenges with the centralized data model is that it's always going to veer towards the lowest common denominator. It's always going to veer towards this average, this mean, because that's the only way that they can operate at scale in that regard. And that's one of the big flaws in the centralized data economy in this regards. But actually, if you flip that, and we have this concept we call the economy of self, which is opposed to 
this idea of the centralized data is the counter to the surveillance capital economy, if, if you will. That's where the individual has actually agency, not only for realizing value from their data, but also for curating it. And if they're rewarded for curating it in the right way, then you end up with a much richer data set and therefore a much richer data economy from that. And we're in the middle of these conversations now with pharmaceutical companies. In the midst of this, we now have a situation where pharma companies really need to get data very quickly about what's happening, particularly as they start to deploy this vaccine in terms of what are the adverse side effects, what's the propensity of them and the like. To make it very tangible, one use case that I always use to talk about the value of data at an individual level is clinical trials. So you've got all these biotech companies, pharma companies that are raising billions of dollars on these innovations and ideas. And the average cost of recruiting a consumer to a clinical trial is $20,000. And the average cost of retaining someone in that trial is then a further $7,000. That's average, right? So on average, you're spending $27,000 to get someone into a clinical trial. So if you have a condition that is ripe and you're a candidate that's ripe for a clinical trial, then your data, literally the data about your health state is worth $27,000 to pharma companies. And I think that this is the problem. You know, all of the value propositions that we have around data are all based on this advertising-led model, which is basically the most lazy and the most socially destructive and, and the most kind of is the lowest level in terms of the value of what data actually represents and what we can do with it. So I think um, moving to these other values is key. And in the context of COVID, I, I agree with you completely because I think what everyone's saying, you know, it's quite fascinating because the privacy community is completely abhorred by the idea of data as property and that of data monetization. And there are some genuine concerns that come with that. But I think that you have to kind of balance these all out. But ultimately, you are right. In the context of COVID, the value of our data is really not only in keeping ourselves safe, it's in keeping our community safe. I'd really like to just pick up on that, if we can, Patricia, just because, you know, this awareness aspect, this educational, how do we use this concept of, of not letting a good crisis go to waste, as Rahm Emanuel called it? Can we build on the COVID moment to get to where you want to be in terms of education and awareness? Let me jump in there too, Michael. I think, Trisha, one thing, and I know you've been working on education campaigns, right, around COVID-19 and what people need to do to stay safe and thinking about how we take a community lens to this and how we encourage each other to think about altruistically, more altruistically, also how to not be naive about it and how to really incentivize that behavior, right, to make that more pro-social behavior. Like, I think there's an open question on, on the minds of many governments, like, how do we actually encourage and incentivize pro-social behavior in a way that is going to reward individuals for such without resulting in exploitation. And I also want to add another layer there, Trisha, I'm hoping you'll address, which is as a woman of color, it was drilled into my head by my father, a cardiologist, to always look when taking medicine or medication, to always look at the study upon which, you know, the dosages and other things were designed. And invariably, that is not somebody who looked like most of us on this screen, to put it very bluntly. How do we ensure that we're not crafting responses around those members of society who tend to already be more powerful to have an outsized voice in the decision-making around things like pandemic response, 
vaccination prioritization, uh, cues, all this kind of thing. So Tricia, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on all those questions. Yeah. So for your first question about how do we not let a good crisis go to waste? I think one way to view what's happening with COVID and the reaction to contact tracing um, and people's really reluctance to even share their information is that we could say this is success, that finally people have a good sense of what their data is and they don't want to share it. But on the other end, we could say, well, this is a failure because this is a point where sharing their personal data would have enabled a greater good. But I think the larger lesson that we have from looking at contact tracing and people's reluctance to that is that we really don't know how to engineer trust at scale. You know, we don't really understand what it takes to get people to trust, to hand over their data. This is, you know, we have stories in the American South where you have contact tracers calling people and being like, hey, tell us who you've exposed. And we know you're in the hospital right now. We need to know. And people are literally hanging up the phone. They're just saying like, you know, they're giving fake numbers, fake names. They're getting mad. Uh, they're just lying. And what you really see is this reaction to people who are like, I don't want to give up my data. But I really think that the lesson is not that, you know, people are being dumb and that they don't want to contribute to the greater good of humanity, but it's that people are very confused because they know that something is wrong. You know, we're talking about people who they haven't had access to, you know, the economy, to all the full Silicon Valley uh, success. And they just know they're like, they're hearing about, hey, something is wrong, should have privacy, but they don't really have the language for it. So you have people end up, even my mother, who is like, I'm not going to share my data. You know, I'm not going to take the vaccine. And I'm like, how did this happen? She's using the words privacy. And so we have all these people who have, we think, you know, it could be very successful that they're using these concepts. But really, it's not about, I don't think it's about COVID at all or the contact tracing app is that people are actually just are very confused and upset. And it shows that we need to do something to really have people have you know, more education and understanding what it is that they're fighting against. And so I think it's really just a revealing of, of total frustration and mm. the failure of trickle-down economics. The second question, I think really for us to design better systems to not recreate exploitation is that we have to start thinking about how do we design for trust at a larger scale? And how do we do that at scale? At the same time, how do we do that with making sure communities see themselves? And if we think about COVID response and recovery, part of the issue is I'm going to talk about New York City. I'm in Brooklyn and the people who have been nominated to oversee the pandemic recovery are Eric Schmidt, Bill Gates. And I would say, are they going to represent the needs of the communities I've been in touch with? You know, people who are incarcerated, who are whole communities who have had a quarter of their you know, neighborhood just die because they were not taken care of, right? Are these the representatives of the community? No, we need to have better ways of representation. And if we're going to be creating policies of any kind, designing any kind of technical infrastructure, the reason why I'm so excited about blockchain is that we didn't have the opportunity with the internet, with prior technologies, like the internet, um, with telecom, to be at the table, to have people like us. I mean, look at us. We have more people of color on this call. This is unprecedented. But before with the design of the internet, we didn't actually think about what were the needs of communities from the very beginning. There was the privilege of the designers thought that everyone else would use the technology like them. And so there was a lot of naivety to it. And with blockchain, I think we have an opportunity to say, before we recreate any problems like at scale, right? We actually have a chance to anticipate what are the risks and then how do we mitigate those risks? 
And then how do we iterate at the same time with technical development? Because oftentimes user research or any kind of insight-based work, and I'm going to talk about like developing technology or developing policies, developing whatever kind of system solution. The research is usually done afterwards. It's like, oh, let's just do a checkbox. Let's make sure the users are okay with it. As opposed to saying, as we're developing the protocol layers, how do we make sure we iterate in real time with communities to make sure that whatever protocol, whatever feature is being suggested, is taking into account the real needs of people. Why don't we use that, Delhi, to get back to your app? You're now at the front lines in, in that sense of, of taking the technology, a decentralized blockchain. I think you made a really interesting point in, in a conversation we had before this about how you know, this question of agency and privacy and the degree to which you have it depends in many respects on how deeply decentralized or broadly decentralized the underlying architecture of the governance system is. So this is where, again, blockchain comes into it. You've built an app on a blockchain to try to help you know, this process of sharing information around specifically COVID and, and health issues. How are you going about the process of developing it such that it doesn't end up where the fact that it's just those who've built it, the, the narrow few, as Trisha and Sheila were talking about, who end up basically setting the terms. How are you making this something that really does reflect the needs of the broad base of people that you're serving? The thought that came to mind as we were talking through the last section, rather, is that never has there been a greater moment or a greater use case to prove that privacy effectively is the currency of trust. You know, if nothing else, that is the big hurdle that we're approaching in terms of this. And whether it's about taking the vaccine, whether it's about sharing information, there is this huge trust barrier and it's more accentuated within minority communities, communities of color. According to statistics, 50% of the majority community are reluctant to take vaccines, 70%, between 70 and 85% of black and brown communities not trust vaccines, are not prepared to take vaccines. So we see an actual increase of the problem, even with the arrival of the vaccine in that regards. But I think in terms of addressing it, you know, I think you have to look at this holistically. We've been at this for a long while and in, in terms of building the foundations, because I think ultimately to be successful, you need, I call it kind of a social stack. And this stack has got four layers. The first layer is ethics. You know, what is right? What is moral? What is ethical? We've done a lot in terms of developing an ethical data standard. That was published this year with the British Standard Institute. We've worked with the COVID Credential Initiative, which is like a decentralized framework around COVID passports, led primarily by the Sovereign Foundation, where we've set up a set of governance rules around COVID credentials specifically. We're working with the New York Senate actually around the Emergency COVID Data Bill, New York Privacy Act. And today we had a meeting where we're talking about a COVID vaccine passport, a set of rules and regulations around that. So you have ethics, you have law, regulation, and then the next part is economics. And it is about the right incentive model. And that's, I mean, even if you look at the copay framework around testing and vaccination in terms of how the pharma industry works, Clearly, you know, Pfizer, Moderna haven't invested huge amounts of money to distribute this vaccine for free. They're not giving it to the world for free. So there is an economic model underpinning all of this as well. And then finally, you have the technology that actually you can kind of then use to that. So that's effectively the social stack that always guides everything that we've done. We have what we call it. We have a charter, a clean data charter that sets the rules of how our marketplace and applications and everything works from this ethical data standard. So that's kind of the macro setting. 
But then in terms of the, the solution itself, it's really about being very sensitive. I think there is a big education process involved in terms of educating people around how their data is used. I think I agree with you, Tricia, in, in the privacy versus anonymity, there being different things. You know, I think essentially there are only three ways that you can really achieve any degree of privacy in a cyber world. It's either you're in off-grid, to your point, Trisha, to leave Facebook and not use these social tools because we are social creatures. And if anything, we want people being more social, we want people being more engaged with their community, not less because of fears of privacy. You know, you've got to sort of bring in those social dynamics in terms of rewards around it. So if you're off-grid, you're not really part of the conversation. You're not part of society. And it's almost like being ostracized, right? And then you can be invisible when you're on-grid, which is very hard to do effectively, or you're anonymous, you know, degrees of anonymity. So that's the essence. That's the key thing to provide the right level of anonymity to different things. So in our app, for example, as a, to give you just a really simple framework around it, we have different data sets. So the most important thing is that you're able to derive both objective and subjective data. So we license a technology that allows us to deduce a person's oxygen saturation level just from looking into their smartphone camera. And that's good because you can now suddenly get to how people actually are versus simply how they feel, which is what you know, people are reporting in these symptoms monitoring apps, which are just basically surveys. It gives context to the objective data but it's the objective data that people get really nervous about. That's why everyone got so nervous about contact tracing, because it's objective about where you actually have been, right? So we create different data sets that you can share with friends or with family or with your employer or with medical professionals. And they all have different information according to those needs. But the most important thing is that when you take a scan or when you go through our app and you answer all these questions or you do a scan of yourself and your contact traced, all of this together is then combined to create through an algorithm that gives you the, the credential. But the important thing is if, if you're clear, you're completely anonymous. If you are at risk, i.e. You, you may have been in contact with someone who's had COVID or you're showing symptoms that mean that you could have COVID, then we make you pseudonymous in the sense, we actually call it semi-anonymous because pseudonymity has kind of two levels or to it effectively. And by being semi-anonymous, what it means is we create a random identifier. Basically, we create a random identifier for everything, for the sharing of any data. But when you're clear, that random identifier is refreshed every 24 hours. So you can't be tracked for, for more than a 24-hour period. If you're at risk, then the random identifier persists for the period that you're at risk. So like 10 to 14 days, typically. And if you're infected, then a cleared person can actually match that random identifier to your natural identity. So that would be a public health official or an HR manager that's overseeing the contact tracing within the context of the team. And that's essentially the core essence around the data sharing aspect of it. But the next step then is really then to encourage people to share that data with the pharma industry, with public health bodies, public health authorities accordingly. That's going to come to some sort of value exchange. And the value exchange could be safety. It could be better information, better deployment of vaccines, better access, better information about it, or it could be financial as well. I don't think any of those are mutually exclusive. I think the challenge now is to provide as compelling a value 
proposition, value exchange framework to the community and to the industry and public health bodies to enable this information to flow accordingly. Deli, I had a question about your social stack. You mentioned four layers, but where is the community, the people in the social stack? At the center of the ethics part, it is all about the human. It's about the person at the center of it. So the key is to use ethics as a guiding framework around what is right in that balance between the individual and the community. Our North Star on that is human rights. You know, how do we protect the rights of the human? And how do we codify those rights in a cyber context? And then from there, everything else flows down. Does the community get to participate in the negotiation of defining what the ethics are, or are they defined ahead of time? The reality is at the moment, and I think when you look at this evolution of the new data economy that we're all pushing for, we're at a stage now, it's, it's actually a flip to what happens normally with regulation in society. You look at GDPR, for example, GDPR has come from legislators and of course it has got its flaws, but it has caused a seismic shift. It is an earthquake in the global data economy framework. So we're at a stage now where it's really think tanks, advocacy groups, consumer advocacy groups that really are at the forefront of articulating the problem in terms of the community, in terms of the citizen in that regards. The reality is the citizen is aware of, you know, everybody, people increasingly are feeling, like you said, the example about your mother, I think stealing you were saying your mother doesn't want to talking about privacy and all this. So the sentiment and feeling is real in the mass population. But I don't think that the mass population, it has been given the education and therefore the vocabulary. Uh, to be able to articulate that clearly. And we're doing a lot in that. I mean, just to bring Harare back again, um, I really do buy into this whole thing about stories and the power of stories. So we've actually started, we've been working on a, on a comic series to tell the story of why is data important. And it's kind of, we say it's like the Matrix meets Mr. Robot on the road to Wakanda. So it's kind of like this twin world, physical world, digital world, where the digital world is run by these fang vampires, fangs who suck <laughs> people's data and enslave people in the digital world. But to kind of bring it more emotional, to give people that emotional human story around why is this important and how to connect with it. You have to check it out. Uh, what's it called again, Deli? the name of the comic strip? Metaye Nights. Metaye Nights, yes. It's, it's a lot of fun. Listen, we're going to wrap it up here. I'm glad you ended on the storytelling part of this because that's kind of how I make my living and have always done so. You know, <laughs> money, money reimagined is part of that process. We're trying to tell the story of the reimagination of money and money being a fairly broad term here because I think this is data and essentially a form of money. Thank you, all of you, for helping us to tell this particular story. It's a, such an important one. It's such a rich one. Could have gone on for ages. And really some fabulous insights. I've got more questions, I think, than I have answers now looking forward to pulling you all together so we can do it again sometime so thank you very very much for this. thank you both so much really a great conversation well as usual we could go a lot deeper but that's all the time we have in today's episode to trisha and delhi our two distinguished guests to sheila and to you the listener thank you very much for your time today and for the support you've given to this new podcast during its first two months We'll be off for the holidays, but we'll be back in the new year with a whole new slate of episodes starting January 8th. Until then, signing off for Coindesk's Money Reimagined. Bye for now.
You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Trisha Wong, and Della Atanda. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Mousseau, produced, announced, and with additional editing by Adam B. Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and as Michael said, we'll be off for the holidays with new episodes back in early January, so stay tuned. Do you have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thank you.